You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Well, as we are talking, the virus rages on. Uh, People are still out of work, and uh, suffering is all around us. This, if you've read the news or watched the news or uh, been on social media, uh, you know that there are people on all sides of this issue. Uh, Some believe uh, that the quarantine was overkill uh, and that we should have never done it. Others believe that we didn't do enough. We should have done more. Some believe that all restrictions now should be lifted, that everyone should go back to work, businesses should be reopened, and life should continue as normal. Other people think, nope, we shouldn't do that for at least another couple of months. Some believe that churches should reopen and begin to do live worship. And in fact, some believe that churches never should have shut down at all, never should have uh, went online. Others believe that churches should remain closed uh, for at least another couple months, maybe even through the summer and into the fall. To that end, some churches... uh, Uh, viewed that this willingness to not gather was kind of the church being a good neighbor, saying, hey, we're going to submit to the government officials, as it says in uh, Romans chapter 13. We're going to be good neighbors so that we're not spreading this. Others saw it as the church compromising, giving in uh, to the world. I'm not going to be able to answer all of your questions today regarding this issue, but what I want to do is to take some time to uh, remind you of some biblical truths uh, today and how we as Christians should respond to them. At the outset, before we get into this, I just want to remind you of a few things, a few things about God that we need to remember. The first is that God is holy. God is holy, and as such, he cannot tolerate sin. God has to deal with sin. Even those sins that we consider as minor sins, not that big of a deal, if God is to remain holy and just, he must punish those sins. The second thing that I want to remind you of is that God owes you and me absolutely nothing but justice. God owes us nothing but justice, and if we realize, as we should, that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, if we realize that the wages of sin is in fact death, then the only thing that God owes us, the only thing that God is indebted to us regarding is that God owes us death and judgment. That is the only thing that God owes us. Anything besides that is mercy and grace and by definition god does not owe us those things those are not human rights the third thing i want you to realize as we start is that god has always been continues to be and will always be in total and complete control of this world in this universe there is not a single molecule in this universe that is outside of the control of almighty god he is in control of it all a fourth thing And that I want you to realize is that God does not change. 
God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as a just God, he must deal with sin. If you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see that in God's dealing with humanity, there's always a mixture of justice and mercy. And whereas God does not owe us mercy, we know that the Bible makes it clear that he delights in showing us mercy. He is eager to extend mercy to us. I bring these things to your attention because I know that when I say something to the effect that this coronavirus is from God, it will make people very, very uneasy. No, 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 God doesn't do that kind of stuff. But the Bible is clear that nothing, absolutely nothing, whether seemingly good or bad, happens outside of the control of God. Think about Joseph in the Old Testament. There's no way in the world that Joseph could have ever known the plan of God when he was thrown into that pit and his brothers wanted to kill him, then taken out of that pit, sold into slavery, and then brought down to Egypt. There's no way at that point that he had any idea what God was doing. And yet later on, in in light of that horrible circumstance, he was able to say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, all along God meant for good. And then what happened as a result of that? Literally hundreds of thousands of people were saved because God brought him down to Egypt because God had a plan for him there. Couldn't have seen it at the time. Think about the crucifixion of Jesus. To his followers, his mother, his disciples, and others, it must have just seemed like a senseless tragedy. But what God was doing is using that to save the world. So when we come to the coronavirus, not only is this virus under the control of God, we also have to believe that it's in his plan for whatever reason that may be. There are several verses that that point to this reality. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. Listen to this. These are verses that we normally don't look at. Um, But it says this, See now, this is God speaking, that I, even I, I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And God speaking in Isaiah 45, 6 and 7 says this, that the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Those verses scream that God is in control, that nothing happens outside of his plan. God and God alone creates. No one can create. Not Satan, not anyone else. God and God alone can create. And so this virus must be from him. But why, you may ask? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. But I believe that looking at 2 Chronicles 7, verses 12 through 22, will bring us a little bit closer to the answer that we're looking for. So let's look at that now. The context of this uh, chapter is that the, uh, Solomon has just built the temple and dedicated it to God. And then Solomon goes to bed and God comes to him at night and has a message for him. And here's what God says to him, beginning in verse 12. <clears throat> then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place 
for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be opened and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keep keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule in Israel. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you and this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And, that, and at this house, which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they abandoned the Lord the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. Now, the first thing that I want you to realize about this passage is that it was written 3,000 years ago. There's a lot of years between us and the original audience. As a result of that, there are differences in this text that we need to consider. There are ways that we are different from the original audience, but there are also similarities as well. So I want to tell you some of the differences so that you don't confuse us. There's not a one-to-one -one correlation between America and Israel. Uh, we are not the people of God. America is not the people of God. Um, and so we want to talk about these differences and then look at the similarities so we can see how this applies to us. So the first thing I've already mentioned is that we are Americans. This was orig originally written to Israel, ancient Israel. Israel was a theocracy, which means that they were ruled by God. God directly gave them his laws. Moses went up on the mountain. God said, this is what you'll tell the people. This is how they are to act. God gave them the law. Moses went down and gave the law to the people. They were directly given by God. They were ruled by God. America is not a theocracy. We are not ruled by God in that sense. God has not given us directly his word. We come up with our own laws. Israel was delivered out of the land of Egypt. They were there for 400 years. America has never been in bondage to Egypt, okay? So we're different there. Israel was promised a land by God for a specific purpose. America was never promised a land for a specific purpose. As a theocracy, Israel had a central place of worship, the temple. 
We do not have a central place of worship any longer. And in fact, the Bible says that you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we worship God wherever we go. And finally, they lived in the time before Jesus. We live in the time after Jesus, his death and resurrection. Those are the major, major differences between us and the original audience. So now let's look at the similarities and see how this passage does apply to us. The first is that Israel was called the people of God and were called by his name. And guess what? So are we. We are God's people. We are called by his name. We bear the name Christian, followers of Christ. Israel had to deal with famine and pestilences and everything else that's bad in a fallen world. And so do we. We deal with these things in our lives. Israel was called when they sinned to humble themselves, to pray, to seek God's face, and to turn from their sins. And we are called to do the exact same thing today when we sin against God. And finally, God promised that if they humbled themselves and prayed and sought his face and turned from their ways, that he would hear from heaven, that he would forgive their sins, and that he would bring restoration, and he does the same thing for us today. Now, going back to the virus, I do not believe that we can say with certainty that this coronavirus has brought, been brought to us uh, as a specific judgment of God for specific sin in this nation or in the world. It may or it may not be. I don't know. I don't, I'm not privy to that information in the heavenly realm. Here's what we do know, is we know, as we said before, that God's hand is in this. As I stated earlier, nothing, absolutely nothing happens outside of the control of God. And if God never wanted coronavirus to be present, then it never would have been. And if God wanted to wipe it out, then he could wipe it out. The very fact that it is with us and that it has not gone away means that at the very least God has allowed it and therefore we must trust that it is in his plan. What the purpose of this is, we cannot know for sure. But I want to put forth two possible reasons why I believe that this coronavirus is in the United States around the world, and I believe that they're biblically backed up. Here's how I believe that God is using this. The first is to remind us that we live in a fallen world. Now, you may think, well, we don't need that. I, I don't need that reminder. Yeah, we do. We forget this all the time. When we're comfortable, we think that life is perfect, and we forget that this is not the way that it's supposed to be. It doesn't take much to look around us and to conclude that, to look at what's going on, even in good times, that this is not the way that it's supposed to be. These days, I'm reminded of this all the time. When I go to shake someone's hand I'm, or give them a hug, and I'm like, ah, can't do it, right? That's not the way it's supposed to be. When a grandmother cannot physically see her grandchildren for months for fear that she might get infected by them, she knows that this is not the way that it's supposed to be. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is mainly written to Christians, but can also apply to us, the apostle says this, if we have hope in this life only, we're the most miserable people around, right? If this is what living is, if this new normal is what it really means to live, where you can't touch people, where you can't go to work, where you have to live in fear, this is the best that life has to offer. So this virus reminds us that we live in a fallen world where things are not the way that they're supposed to be and therefore we do not look to this world for our ultimate hope and satisfaction. A second thing that I think that God is using in, in addition to reminding us that we live in a fallen world, uh, a second reason that I think he's using this pandemic is to remind us of our own mortality. To remind us of our own mortality. Why? Why do people go around with gloves or masks on everywhere we go? Why were businesses shut down? Why were people afraid? Are people afraid to shake hands or to, or to be near someone else? Why were so many people willing to give up their freedoms and their livelihoods? And the answer is because we're afraid. We're afraid that we might give or receive something that might lead to the death of someone else or ourselves. Everywhere we go, we see the numbers, right? 1.3 million confirmed cases. 80,000 people have died of coronavirus, and we wonder if we might be next. We wonder if that might be us on that ventilator holding on for dear life, if we might become another statistic. Everyone is suddenly acutely aware of their own mortality and those around them as well. And the sad thing is that most people are not ready to die. Most people are not ready to die. Oh, they may say that they're not afraid to die, but most are either lying or they have no idea what awaits them in the life to come. And yet in all of this, where do we turn? We turn to our political leaders, right? We turn to them for, for guidance. Tell us what to do. Uh, should we, can we come out or should we stay in? Uh, give us, we, we, we look to them for provision. Give us money. We need money. And we look to science for the cure. Science is the savior. Science will develop a drug. Science will develop a vaccine. And it will wipe this all out. And then those who dare to suggest that maybe, just maybe, God can help, they're mocked. They're laughed at. When this pandemic first hit the U.S., a task force was immediately uh, put uh, into motion and uh, Vice President Mike Pence put it together. And the very first thing that they did when they gathered together is that they prayed. They prayed. And there was a picture taken um, of them praying. And that picture was posted and they were mocked for doing it. A tweet immediately followed. It came out with a picture of the group with these words. Mike Pence and his coronavirus emergency team praying for a solution. We are so screwed. That's what it said. Implying that it's futile to turn to God. Why in the world would we go to the, back to this archaic system of believing in a God 
Why would we bow our heads and pray? Science is the answer, not God. If you don't believe me, on April 12th, in a CNN interview, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York said the following, Our behavior has stopped the spread of this virus. God did not stop the spread of this virus. End quote. The next day, the governor repeated himself when discussing the flattening of the curve, right? That's the big thing. We want to flatten the curve so that we're not overwhelming the hospitals. He said this, the number is down because we brought the number down. God did not do that. Fate did not do that. Destiny did not do that. A lot of pain and suffering did that. End quote. Now please do not hear what I'm not saying. I am not throwing out science. I'm very thankful for science. I had a 22-year career in the pharmacy industry where I dispensed life-saving medications to people. Okay, I'm not, and, and I'm telling you what, when I had kidney stones, I was very thankful for advances in technology. Very, yeah, amen. Um, very, very thankful for science. God has blessed us with intelligent women and men who have made such amazing advances. But if you, well, what I want to remind you is that God and God alone is our ultimate healer. God is our ultimate healer. In fact, God speaking in Exodus chapter 15, 26 says this, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commands and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. God is our healer. And there's a very, very telling verse in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 12. And I would ask you to mark it down if actually, if you're in 2 Chronicles 7, you could turn over. But 2 Chronicles 16, 12 says this. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord but sought help from physicians. The very next verse says this, And Asa slept with his fathers, dying in the 41st year of his reign. Now this verse is not saying that it is a sin to go to the doctors. How dare you even entertain the idea of going to the doctors. It's just saying that if you put your hope exclusively in the medical community and ignore God, that is a grave, grave sin. You're treading on very thin ice. Going back to 2 Chronicles 7, what we see is that these famines and these diseases were brought on because of sin. The people had rebelled against God and his commands, and now their general or their specific sins were the sickness. They were the cause of all of the problems that they were having. So what was the remedy? Well, the remedy was simple. It was God and his word. That's what the remedy was. When they threw off the word of God and did their own thing, that was pride, plain and simple. They said, God, we don't need you. We don't need you to tell us what to do. 
I know that you think this is the best way for us, but we know what is better for us. Your way is not bringing us the happiness that we want. We will call the shots now, and that is pride. What was the remedy? The remedy for pride is humility. Humility. And so that's the first thing that God calls his people to do when they sin against him, is that he calls them to humble themselves. If you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, you will realize very quickly that God cannot stomach pride. He deals with that sin more severely than any other sin that I can think of in the Bible. God hates, hates pride. And so he calls his people to humble themselves before him. That's the first step. And God will always, always respond to a contrite heart. In a moment, we're going to talk about this guy, Manasseh, who, who 60 years, he, or 54 years he reigned, and he did evil, 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 evil in the sight of God for decades and decades. And then God brought punishment upon him. And in that moment, what he did is he humbled himself before God. And he asked for forgiveness, and God responded. And God brought him back to the land. God always responds to a contrite heart. When Israel did end up going off on their own way, when they did say, hey God, we don't need you to tell us what to do, they obviously had gone off course, right? This is the course that God set for them. And they went. They veered either to the right or to the left. They did this over and again by worshiping the idols and by adopting and conforming to the worship practices of the pagan nations. When they did this, the only, only way back to God through their wandering was to do the next thing that Second Chronicles 7 says, and that was namely to seek the face of God in prayer. We've gotten away from God. We've taken our eyes off of him. We need to now seek him in prayer. After they humbled themselves and sought God's face in prayer, the next step was to turn from their wicked ways, and this is what the Bible calls repentance. Repentance. It's not enough to just acknowledge their sin. They also needed to forsake it. You need to forsake your sin because if you don't, it will lead you right back into it again and away from God. Don't, t- don't think for a moment that you can toy with it. Don't think for a moment that you can, ah, a, a few, it's not going to be bad if I do this. No, it will lead you right back in. This passage was written during a time when all was well in Israel. I mean, the temple was built. Nothing could be better. They, they, they were more wealthy than they'd ever been. The blessing of God was upon them, but that would all change. Because of sin, what would happen in the very near future is that the kingdom of Israel would be split. Ten of the tribes would go to the northern kingdom, and two would go to the southern kingdom. And in the northern kingdom, the sad commentary is that there was not one good king They immediately rejected the word of the Lord. They immediately instituted their own religious system. They fell. In the southern kingdom, it was a little bit better. They had several good kings, but most of them were just as bad. Both departed from the word of the Lord doing their own thing. But there was one that's highlighted uh, in the Bible who illustrated very well the promises of this passage in second chronicles chapter 7 and his name was king josiah and his story is found in second kings in uh, 22 and if you want to turn there you can turn there uh, if you're in chronicles uh, kings uh, comes before uh, chronicles 
But his story is found there. And before uh, chapter 22, we read about his father. His father was named Ammon, uh, and uh, he was the king right before Josiah. And here's what it says about Ammon. Here's his commentary on his life. <coughs> Second Kings chapter 21, 19 through 22 says this. Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign. Skipping down to verse 20. And he did uh, what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. He walked in all the ways in which his father walked and served the idols that his father served and worshiped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. That's the commentary on Ammon's life. And therefore he died, and then Josiah began to reign. So Josiah inherited a sinful, rebellious religious system that had been in place for at least 60 or more years. This rebellious, sinful system. But during his reign, and I love this story, there's this, high, this, this priest named Hilkiah, and he's in the house of the Lord, and he's searching through the treasury of the Lord because they need to find money to pay the workers. And as he is in the house of the Lord searching, he finds a book. And he opens it up, and he starts to read it. You can almost hear him gasp. It's the law of the Lord. And he immediately sends it to the king. And in 2 Kings 22, verse 10, here's what it says. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahiakim the son of Shaphan and, and Akbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Azaziah the king's servant saying, go inquire of the Lord for me and for his people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that was written concerning us. You can hear the fear in his voice, right? Like you, can, you can almost feel it like, oh my goodness, this is what it says. This is not what we've been doing. And yet it promises all these curses. We're in trouble. So what was his response? His response was first, Humility, right? He tore his clothes. Humility. The second, what is the second response? He commands Hilkiah, the priest, to go and seek the Lord. Go talk to God and, and, and find out what the verdict is. Because I know, it's, I know we deserve judgment, but I don't want judgment. God's response comes in verse 18 and 19. It says this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that you should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Don't you love that? That's exactly what 2 Chronicles said, 7 said. If you hear me and humble yourself and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven. And then God goes on to tell Josiah that he will go to his grave 
in peace. And then the whole next chapter, chapter 23, is all about the reforms that Josiah puts into place. It all demonstrates his repentance. He not only knew what he had done wrong, but then he took the measures to correct it. We violated this. We're no longer going to do that. We're going to tear down these places. We weren't doing this. We're going to now start to do this. He repented. This is the same pattern that we are to follow as well. There is no doubt that our nation has departed from the Lord. Even if people uh, don't claim to be Christians, Romans 1 and 2 makes it very, very clear that they know that there is a God, that there is a moral God, and they know the difference between right and wrong, and yet our country suppresses that truth and believes a lie. And what was said uh, during, uh, of the people during the time of the judges is true of our American culture, that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. This is your truth. This is my truth. And everyone does what is right in their own eyes. As a result, we have over 60 million babies who have been sacrificed on the altar of convenience in the name of health care. We have men who dress up as women and come into our public libraries and read books to our kids. We have same-sex marriage. We have uh, businesses, small businesses and large businesses who are being sued because they try to hold to their religious convictions. We have a sexually charged culture that permits sex with anyone at any time, in any way. And we have a media and an entertainment industry that celebrates all of these sins and just screams them and loves them. America is in serious need of repentance. Well, what that repentance looks like, I do not know, but I do know where it begins. Repentance begins with the church. More specifically, repentance begins with each individual believer in the church. Before we can take the speck out of our nation's eye, we need to deal with the beam that's in our own eye. We need to ask God to search us to see if there's any wicked way in us, and then we need to humbly repent. Let me ask you just to think for a moment. Are there any sins right now that you're harboring? No one knows about them. Maybe secret sins that you're harboring in your own life. Oh, you may say, oh no, I'm not physically committing any kind of sexual sin, but are you looking at it? Are you celebrating it as it's on TV? Are you laughing at the immorality in movies or TV shows or on the radio? You may outwardly say that you trust God, but are you secretly freaking out about this pandemic and trying to take measures or matters into your own hands and trusting everything but God? We may say that we love the people of this world and that we're concerned and long for their salvation, but are we praying for them? Specifically, are we praying for our government leaders or are we too busy bad-mouthing them? making fun of them, talking about how stupid they are. In addition to that, are we praying for our neighbors? 
for our coworkers, for our fellow students or our family members who don't know Jesus, or are we just unconcerned about them? Do you believe that there is a real hell? Do you believe that there is a real place of eternal torment? And if you do, does that give you any kind of urgency for those people around you who don't know Jesus? There's an atheist who once told William Booth, who is the founder of the Salvation Army, he said this quote, and this, this, every time I read this quote, I'm like, whew, it's hard. <laughs> this atheist said this quote, if I believed what you Christians say you believe about the coming judgment and that the impenitent rejectors of Christ will be lost, I would crawl on my bare knees on crushed glass all over London, warning men night and day to repent of their sin and to turn to Christ, who is their only place of refuge. End quote. In the 80s, uh, artist Steve Camp wrote a song, uh, and here's the words from it. It says, this hell is burning while the church sleeps. Don't you know hell is burning while the church is asleep? Oh, we're stuck in our pews as they're dying in our streets. You know hell is burning while the church is asleep. We can say that we care for others, but let me ask you, do your actions prove it? Furthermore, we call ourselves the church, the set-apart ones, right? And yet very often in our thoughts, in our speech, and in our actions, we're indistinguishable from the world. We are in dire need of repentance. Peter said, it is time for judgment to begin, and it begins with the house of God, right? That's where it starts. So we are to begin to look at ourselves and to see if there's anything in our lives that we need to confess and to turn away from. Then we are to pray and we are to seek God's face. How are we to pray and seek God's face? Well, the Bible is very clear on this issue. First, we are to seek God with all that we are. This is not a haphazard pursuit. Oh yeah, God, please keep me safe and then go about your, your regular day-to-day stuff. No, this is a Jeremiah 29, 13 seeking where God said this, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with what? All your heart, right? This is not a half-hearted pursuit. This is a full pursuit. God, we need you. We're desperate for you. And so we seek God as if our lives depended on it. Why? Because our lives do depend on him, right? In him we live and move and have our being. So that's how we're to seek God, but how are we to pray? Well, we're to pray in the name of Jesus with faith. We're to pray in the name of Jesus with faith. John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, Jesus speaking, he said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So we are to pray in the name of Jesus. And then in Matthew chapter 21, verse 21, 22, Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do as what was done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. The mountain that he's talking about is the mountain of unbelief. 
To pray in the name of Jesus means to pray in a way that is consistent with who he is and what he desires. It is not to pray, Lord, I would like a new boat. I pray this in Jesus' name. And therefore you get it. No, it's to pray in a way that is consistent with his, his character and his desire. Basically, it's to say this. I pray this because I believe that this is what Jesus would ask. That's a really good way to filter your prayers, right? Would Jesus really ask for this? And as we studied in, second, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we saw that God's desire is for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So you think when you pray for the salvation of others, do you think that that is according, that it, that's in the name of Jesus? You bet it is. As everyone's mortality is before their eyes, God has given us a wonderful opportunity unlike ever before. And my question is, are we making the most of that opportunity? Will we pray for our neighbors, our co-workers, our, our family members, our fellow students, believing God for a miracle. There are some family members that I'm thinking, no way would they ever come to know Jesus. And God is saying, really? Really? And so many times we doubt. We doubt. Well, here's the, the bottom line. The physical death that the coronavirus can bring is real, but it pales in comparison to the spiritual death that awaits those who don't know Jesus pales in comparison. It'll be like a day at the beach compared to an eternity away from God. We need to know that. We're going to go into communion in a, in a moment, but before we do that, what I want to do is I just want to take some time in light of what we just talked about and respond. And I want us to pray. I want us to pray um, I want us to pray for our neighbors. I want us to pray for our city, the city of Galveston and the officials. I want to pray for our medical professionals uh, who are in, in, you know, right in the, in the heat of it. I want us to pray that yes, God would keep them safe physically, but more importantly that God would impart spiritual life to them, that God would wake them up spiritually. I want us to pray for our nation. I want us to pray that the United States would repent. What that looks like, I don't know. But I know we have a lot of sin. We have a lot of blood on our hands. And I want us to pray for our government officials that God would save them. Listen to this. Even if you don't like them, okay? And you know who I'm talking about when we talk about government officials, right? Even if you don't like them, and even if you think there's no way that they would ever come to know Jesus, ask God to forgive you for that attitude. And ask God to give you the faith to believe. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Because those people, and I could name them, need Jesus just as much as you do. And you would be completely lost unless God broke into your life. Pray that God would save them. And so what we're going to do is, I'm going to open it up. I'm going to open up to whoever who want, uh, wants to pray. Um, what I'm asking is that you just take a moment uh, to just quiet your hearts before God. Repent. Ask for God, this is what I did last night. This is what I thought. This is, you know, God, I've been bad-mouthing, you know, this person or whatever. And just repent. Confess your sins quietly. And then whoever wants to pray after that, just pray out loud. And after a, a little bit of the awkward silence, right, as we normally have, I'll, I'll close this in prayer. And then we'll go into our time of communion. So I'm just going to open it up to whoever wants to pray.